Good morning. So good to see you this morning. I guess you figured out, I think Tim maybe announced that Ripple of Light is with us this morning. Uh, if you don't know who Ripple of Light is, you want to be here at the end of March because I'm going to have an interview with them on a Sunday night. We're going to talk to James Graham and Kevin Batten, the two masterminds behind this. Uh, this is an internet ministry that our church supports as a mission work, and I'm glad that we do. They produce our television show now, um, which is still airing at 10 o'clock on KTAB, but they're the ones producing it now, and they can they can really allow us to do a whole lot more things as far as, you know, uh, set and, and production value and things like that. They also, um, if you haven't followed them on Facebook or gone to their website, they also have a lot of videos out there. They're partnering with World Bible School and uh, a new branch of World Bible School called Methodist and doing a great job there. What they're here for this morning is instead of being on one or two channels for a commercial like we have been, we have done a deal with uh, Suddenlink so we can be on several channels and we're going to do a, a very generic commercial instead of just me and Jake and Blake talking. This will be a more generic commercial showing our congregation. The idea, as James put it, is we want people when they look at the commercial on TV think that they are getting a snapshot of what Oldham Lane is if they were to walk through the doors. And so that's what James is doing this morning is gathering the footage and uh, we'll let you know when that starts airing. Thank you, James, for being here. Appreciate you. Um, I remember it well. It was Super Bowl 28. My beloved Dallas Cowboys defeated the Buffalo Bills 30-13. to That was the second time that they had done that in as many years. You see, the Buffalo Bills were known as the only team in NFL history to make four consecutive Super Bowls and to lose all four of them. Twice at the hands of the Dallas Cowboys, which I loved, I was fine with. Emmitt Smith in Super Bowl 28 had a great game. He was named the MVP. But he did something after the game that I thought was really interesting and actually brought tears to my eyes. He picked up his little goddaughter and he carried her in his arms and he walked across the field through the maze of people and the chaos that was going on and the celebrating and he walked over to the other side of the field and he found the running back for the Buffalo Bills, Thurman Thomas. Now, Thurman Thomas was a great running back as well, Hall of Fame career. Thurman Thomas was sitting on the bench with his head down, weeping, and Emmett Smith came over, goddaughter in his hands, and embraced Thurman Thomas. And he looked at his goddaughter and he said, honey, I want you to meet the best running back in the NFL. What a humble thing to do, right? How would you define humility? Is it the professional athlete after the game that gives all glory to God? Is it that family member who never wants to be in any of the photos because he doesn't want to be the center of attention? Is it that shy demure individual that when you tell them they're great at something they say oh no I'm terrible I'm, I'm nothing how would you define humility imagine a man who claims to be king imagine a man who rides in on a donkey as everyone throws their coats down on the ground for him to step all over imagine a man who says that even the rocks will cry out if the people don't is that humility Maybe can kind of remind you of something like this, right? Nobody can tell me I'm not humble. I'm glad you're here this morning because you're about to hear the best sermon on humility you've ever heard preached. <laughs> but before we do that, before we dive in, you, we need to do a little bit of an academic exercise, I guess, and do a little background. So let's go to Zechariah chapter 9. And in Zechariah chapter 9, starting in verse 9, here's what we read. 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now understand that the Jews have been in exile in Babylon. And they are there because of their rampant immorality, basically, specifically because of their idol worship. So God is punishing them, but God is a forgiving, merciful God. And so God promises that they have a future on the horizon. Something better is to come. He promises restoration. And so Israel is going to return from captivity. They're going to return home. And this glorious homecoming is rather short-lived because when they get home, they realize that everything is in shambles. Everything is an utter mess. Not just their homes, the city walls, and the temple of God. But it's not just a physical rebuilding. There's also a rebuilding of the people. Israel's going to have to be rebuilt themselves and restore that relationship with God that they had squandered. And things go well in the beginning. Israel's rebuilding project is moving right along. But outside opposition thwarts their efforts and the construction process remains dormant for 16 years. Enter Haggai, the minor prophet. Haggai comes in and he stirs up the people to finish the work. He encourages them and and it goes right along there for a little while, but then it comes to a halt again and enter another minor prophet by the name of Zechariah who piggybacks on the efforts of Haggai and trying to stir up the people to once again finish this process. And finally, 516 BC, because of the efforts of Haggai and Zechariah, the temple is rebuilt And it's against this backdrop that Zechariah's efforts take place. Again, Zechariah is at the heart of the rebuilding of the people. Not just the rebuilding of the temple of God, but the rebuilding of the people and restoring that relationship with God. The prophet delivers eight divine visions and two oracles for the purpose of turning the people's hearts back to God. The thrust of Zechariah's message is that God's blessings are dependent upon the loving obedience of the people. And Zechariah shows God's people what the future holds. Zechariah 14, starting in verse 8, it reads, And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate of the corner, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses, people will live in it, and there will no longer be a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. So a day is coming when the Messiah is going to reign supreme. Jesus will provide a fountain, a fountain in which the flow from his pierced body will cover the sins of the people. It will flow out of Jerusalem over all the earth. But before that day arrives, there's going to be a rather long wait, some 500 years. But hey, they've been in captivity for 70, so what's another 500, right? So Israel sits in time out for 500 years. And the only thing that really keeps them going during this bleak time is the promises of God. But I want you to notice 
Zechariah chapter 1, verse 12, it says, Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah with which you have been indignant these 70 years? How long? That's the million-dollar question. How long, God? How long are we going to have to wait? How long is this punishment going to continue? The people wait, and they wait, and they wait. Have you ever noticed that the New Testament starts with an assumption? You ever notice that? The New Testament starts with an assumption. It assumes that you know everything that has gone on before. So when somebody tells you, well, the Old Testament serves no purpose for us today, don't even worry about that. No, that's absolutely false. Nothing could be further from the truth. You cannot understand and appreciate what you're reading in the New Testament without first understanding and appreciating what you read in the Old Testament. Because all the things that you read about in the New Testament, about Jesus coming, the kingdom coming with him, all the teachings of Jesus about the kingdom, all of that is talked about in the Old Testament. Haggai, Zechariah, all them, all these prophets, they set up what we're reading about in the New Testament, right? The New Testament begins with an assumption. The assumption that you know what went on before. The Old Testament prophets point to the anointed one. And you know what his name was? Jesus. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem to shouts of Hosanna, the son of David, he was fulfilling prophecy. The onlookers that day saw an exact representation of what Zechariah talked about. They would have understood fully when they looked at this picture of Jesus riding in on a donkey, the triumphal entry as we call it. They would have had that picture in their mind. Oh yeah, that's Zechariah. That's what he talked about because they studied, they knew the Old Testament. Jesus came into a power happy world before he ever was born in a manger. He existed. Right? With the Father and, and the Holy Spirit. He is the pre-existent one. Many thought that he would come as the Messiah to deliver the people from physical oppression. They thought that he would come and he would sit on an earthly throne and make their lives comfortable and convenient. He would come and he would rule with an iron fist and he would fly, swise, flies, swipe flies with a sledgehammer. He would be the kind of guy that did away with all those who opposed God's people. And when they saw him controlling the weather, raising people from the dead, exercising demons, I'm sure that's probably what they thought, is that we got the guy. We got the guy that is going to come and, and rule with an iron fist. But they didn't expect to have a Savior that would carry a cross. They wanted a Savior that would wear a crown. They didn't want a Savior who would get killed by the bad guys. They wanted a Savior who would kill all the bad guys. Even the apostles didn't understand what was going on. For many of them fled. Many of them held their breath behind closed doors. And when they saw Jesus going to the cross, they must have thought, well, there's just another victim of the opposition. Another man who came along saying he would save us, only to fall victim to Rome. They didn't understand that victory in Jesus would come through humble means. And it's a connection that we often miss as well, right? Look with me at Paul's words in Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Did you hear about the uh, commercial airline that had to make an emergency landing recently because one of the passengers 
was having an asthma attack. While the people on the plane were frustrated, they understood that they, the plane had to land. I mean, the guy was, was in grave danger, and so they land to get him to a hospital. One lady on the plane was not happy. She could be heard screaming, get this plane back in the air, you're ruining my vacation. She was eventually led off the plane in handcuffs, spitting in the security officer's face. She was arrested because of her antics. And as she's led off the plane, all the other passengers cheered. It's embarrassing to see someone prioritize their preferences over everyone else, right? It's embarrassing on an airplane. It's even more embarrassing in a church. Why do you think Paul would have to write these words to a church? I mean, certainly church people understand about humility and selflessness. I mean, we're the people who go the extra mile and turn the other cheek. We're the people that bear one another's burdens, encourage one another, love one another, stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Certainly we understand about selflessness and humility, right? I mean, church people don't need to hear this. It's been a problem since the beginning of the world, right? From Adam and Eve to Nadab to... David to James and John to the 21st century to you and me. It's always been a problem. My guess is it probably always will be. Paul says do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But folks, selfish ambition is what gets you ahead in life, right? Selfish ambition is what makes the world go round. Second place is the first loser. It's not how you play the game. It's whether you win or lose. You look out for number one. If you're going to make an omelet, you've got to crack a few eggs, right? You've got to assert your will. If you want to climb to the top rung of the ladder, you've got to be willing to step on some people. That's just how the world works. It's survival of the fittest. It's dog eat dog. Pride is the best-selling tool because it is fueled by selfish ambition. And Satan uses this tool over and over again. But pride can't win. And you know why? Because its opposition is too strong. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Anything God opposes is going to lose. You realize that, right? Anything God opposes is going to lose. Pride may win a few battles here on this earth, and in fact it does many times. But pride is the biggest loser in eternity. You ever, uh, you ever go to a, a recital, a concert, an orchestra. Maybe you go watch your, your, your kids in junior high or high school. You walk into the gymnasium to listen to them in the band. And what do you hear oftentimes? You hear a grotesque noise, don't you? I mean, there are different instruments wailing in different you know, keys and everything else. And you're like, wow, this is chaos. I mean, what are they doing? If this is how the concert is going to sound, they probably better stop now and just just call it off, right? But you got all these people blowing in their instruments and all these different keys. But what's happening? What's happening? Luke, what's happening? Tuning. They're tuning their instruments so that they can all be on the same page when it comes concert time. And that is what Paul is talking about. Sometimes church gets messy. Sometimes it becomes chaotic. Sometimes we're all blowing in different keys and we're not in harmony and we're not reading from the same sheet of music. And Paul says, your personal preferences aren't that important. They don't mean as much as you think they do. You know what's most important? That we're all in the same key. 
that we're all in harmony, that we're all reading from the same sheet of music. Have this mind among yourselves, he says, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In order to understand the unity that comes in the Spirit, Paul says, quit prioritizing your preferences and prioritize unity. He says, be like-minded, have the same love, be of one spirit and of one mind. Even later in this letter, he calls out two women that are fighting, Euodia and Syntyche, and his message to them basically is, can't you just get along? By the way, how would you like to have a letter read in front of the entire church that mentions your name? I mean, you'd want to crawl under the pew, wouldn't you? But Paul's saying, just get along. Because your preferences aren't the most important thing. This isn't about you. This is about something bigger. Paul says, be like Jesus. Do what he did. And what did Jesus do? Well, he started at the highest place. He started with equality with God. He left the comforts of heaven. He had equal status with God. He is eternal. He is infinite. But he didn't see that as something to be grasped. And in the original language here, grasp simply means to seize Something's for yourself. He didn't seize it for himself. He emptied himself. He did not use his position for selfish advantage. There is not a speck of selfish ambition in Jesus' heart. He set the supreme example by using his high position for unselfish gain. He descended to the lowest place. Again, he emptied himself. Jesus started at the highest place, traveled down to the lowest place. Leaving heaven, coming to earth, he gave up all the rights and privileges that come with being equal to God. He became a servant. Complete submission to the Father's will. Jesus' first step downward was becoming a servant. Instead of coming and sitting on a throne, he washed feet. He became a human. The invisible God became human. He didn't stop being God, but he was God covered in human flesh. Now the once infinite, intangible being could be touched. He could be embraced. He could be talked to. He became obedient to the point of death. Death was actually a part of his obedience. The cross was the final step downward for Jesus. The lowest rung on the ladder. There was no lower place for the son to go. But the cross was his destination all along. All the other steps downward led to this moment where he would be hung on a cross, ultimately put in a tomb, and walk out of it. That is the gospel. Still is the heart of the gospel. But go back to verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves. Everything Paul describes here concerning Jesus is related to what? Everything Paul describes here is related to what? Humility. Yes. Good. It's all related to humility. Because if we're going to be reading the same sheet of music, if we're going to be in the same harmony, if we're going to be all in tune to God and His plan, we've got to be reading from the same script. We've got to be, we've got to be understanding of the unity of the Spirit and what it means for us to set aside personal priorities and preferences for the bigger good. 
I like how Cal Ripken Jr. talked about humility and being humble. He said, I'd much rather be referred to not as an individually great player or someone who tore up the record books, but someone who came to the ballpark and said, okay, I'm here. I want to play. What can I do to help us win today? A lot of people ask, what is your greatest play, your greatest accomplishment? I say, I caught the last out of the World Series. Wasn't a great catch. I didn't dive. I didn't turn a cartwheel and throw the guy out at first base. People's mouths didn't drop open on the play. We all want to be a part of something bigger, but we all have our little jobs that we do as a member of a team. Everybody has their individual responsibilities, but they all have to come together for the main goal. So the most fulfilling moment I could ever have, again, was catching the last out of the World Series, knowing that we did it. I could see Paul saying something similar. I could see him saying, if he wrote a letter to the Oldham Lane Church, I could see him saying, hey, we're all a team here. You're all a team. And it's not about who gets the credit. It's about, it's about God. It's about Jesus. It's about the mission. It's about the gospel. It's about something bigger than you. It's about so much bigger than yourself. To be like Jesus means to be selfless. Have you noticed that that's Paul's message throughout his letters? Do you notice that that was Jesus' teaching in a nutshell? That in order to be a disciple, you have to be selfless. Why does the first, why is the first beatitude to be poor in spirit? Because it starts there. There's not going to be anybody in heaven who's not first poor in spirit. It starts with humility. It starts with being selfless. Don't miss the connection here. If we want to be victorious, then it begins with humility. Success in the church and triumph in our spiritual lives is all about being about the Father's business and living for Him. You know, there are countless individuals throughout history who have performed acts of heroism who have all been but forgotten. Do you remember which president was shot on March 31st, 1981? Yeah, Ronald Reagan. Do you remember the name of the Secret Service agent that stepped in front of him and took a bullet? Remember that guy's name? Maybe a couple of you. Most of us don't. For this man's act of heroism, not really remembered. He may be referred to as that guy. So many people throughout history have done great things but are not remembered, at least not their names. Consider Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 23. It says, When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. What were the names of those folks that lowered Paul down in a basket? What were the names of those who held the ropes? You don't know, do you? I don't either. But dare I say, there, Paul's ministry would have stopped before it was ever started if it hadn't been for these folks. Then there's you. You may never have the spotlight. 
You may never receive the credit that you think you deserve. You may never become a household name. But you know what you can do? You can hold a rope. We can all do that. So here's what I would encourage you and challenge you with as we leave here today. Grab a rope. We need to be people who are all on the same page, reading from the same sheet of music in harmony with one another as we are in harmony with God and His plan. Imagine the greatness that we can achieve as a team when we don't care who gets the credit, right? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for another day for the opportunity to be here together as a church, as a team, to worship you, to remember the, the, the sacrifice and to, and to be able to allow that to motivate us and encourage us, not just in worship here this morning, but also as we leave this place. Help us to remember that we are disciples and that our work is never-ending and that it's not just about what we do when we gather, but it's about what we do when we scatter as well. Thank you, Lord, for our team. Thank you for your son, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. So if we can help you this morning, maybe you need prayers. Maybe your life is a mess and it's in chaos, and maybe you're trying to rebuild. Maybe you need you know, the prayers of this church family. Maybe, maybe you're ready to take the next step, whatever that may be. Maybe you're ready to study the Bible with someone, or maybe you're ready to, to be immersed in the waters of baptism. Whatever your need is this morning, don't leave here without being right with God. Why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?